You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Uh, so as a, as a reminder of where we've been in the narrative of Nehemiah up until last week, right, the people had been charged with rebuilding the city of God, Jerusalem. Um, they were blessed by the king of Persia. Nehemiah was blessed by the king of Persia to go do this. So he has permission to go rebuild. And we see that after much opposition, there's external opposition, there's internal opposition to the building project that um, even in light of all that, they finished the project. They finished the walls of Jerusalem. And so uh, the result of this is that in chapter 6, we see the surrounding nations exclaim that there's something to this God of Israel. There's something to Yahweh because these people should not have completed this project. And yet, here they sit and stand and feast in a rebuilt city. So God's reverence is kind of pulsating out of the city of Jerusalem, and there's a feast that the nations are invited to called the Feast of Booths, and everybody's experiencing the blessing of God in the context of a rebuilt city of God. But last week in chapter 9, we see all of this feasting, all of this celebration come to a halt, and the people turn almost immediately. They get alone. The people of God send out the people of the nations, and they put on sackcloth, and they put dirt on their heads, um, and they repent. They recount the story of God up until this point, um, and they, they acknowledge all of the places where God has been faithful and they have been unfaithful. Um, they say that we've failed to trust you, God. We have failed to worship you, God. We have failed to make your name great, God, and we have failed to bless the nations like you have called us to. So in chapter 9, they're recognizing their faults, and they do this by lamenting and repenting and by recounting the story of God and themselves. And so chapter 9 is largely about their history, but it's in the context of them pleading to God for forgiveness. And as they do, we get to the end of chapter 9, and they recommit themselves to God by signing this covenant. It says this, chapter 9, 38, because of all of this, because of all of our sin and failure and inability to walk in reverence of God's holiness, because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On a sealed document are the names of our princes, princes, our Levites, and our priests. Sorry, I've been watching too much Disney, um, which is true. I have been. Chapter 10 begins, as Miss Linda said, with this account of the prominent names of those who signed a covenant. So, I don't know about you, but I don't know if I'm signing that document. As I kind of said last week, it's, there's a lot of stuff in the document that they're committing to, and we have the names of the people who signed it today. 2,500 or so years later, we know exactly who signed this covenant. That's what all the first 27 verses are about. Nehemiah is saying, you're going to sign this covenant I don't know if he's fully cognizant that this will be made God's word or God is, is writing through Nehemiah, but what happens is this is chronicled forever. The names of the people who signed it. Um, and then verse 28 shows us, I guess, graciously that there were even more people who signed this covenant whose names aren't here. All the people, all the servants, all the gatekeepers, all the wives, all the children, specifically the children of age who could understand it said, they joined in, the verse tells us, and they said, yes, we agree to enter into this covenant. So first, what is a covenant, right? Like, 
let's start with just the idea of a biblical covenant because we sang it this morning. You're the God of covenant. We're talking about a covenant here that the people are making. And so let's first start with a biblical covenant and then let's move on to talking about what, what this covenant is specifically saying. There's a whole branch of Bible study of theology called covenant theology. And the point of that theology is to understand God's covenants because some scholars would even say that God's, the way God speaks to his creation is through covenant. We know, obviously, God speaks to us through his word, but when God is audibly speaking to his people in the Old Testament, he's speaking in the language of covenants. All of God's covenants in the Bible have covenant stipulations. They say what God will do and what man is to do sometimes. They say the reward for following the covenant. They say there's a curse associated with not following a covenant Right? So th this is much more than rules for life or a great way of living. And, that, and that's important for us as Christians to know. This isn't just a good worldview that, that kind of keeps us in line or it's something we subscribe to. This is a covenant. It means there are stipulations and obligations. It's a, it, we need to keep that in our mind as we're thinking about what these things are saying uh, in Nehemiah 10. God's first covenant with man is called, uh, it's called the covenant of works. It's a covenant that he makes with Adam. So you know the story, right? Adam is the first man created. Eve is created from Adam's rib. The covenant God makes with Adam is called the covenant of works. And it's very, very simple. Here are my rules, God says. If you follow the rules, you will have life. If you break them, you will have death. This is the very simple picture of the covenant God makes with Adam. And we're going to see those simple rules. In fact, you probably know people who misunderstand Christianity by those rules, but they're right in a way. I'm going to unpack that. The rules being follow the rules and you will live, break the rules and you will die. This is the covenant God makes with Adam. And you're already thinking, Wait, we don't believe that you can be saved by good deeds, by good works, right? We're Christians. We believe that you can be saved only by believing in Jesus, that faith in Jesus Christ is what saves you, right? Yes, that is, that is true. <laughs> I'm not saying anything contrary. That is what we believe, but, but we do believe that perfectly following the rules would save you. I'm going to unpack that as we go on this morning. Um, it's a tension between the call of the covenant of perfection, the covenant of works that God has called us to, a tension between that and what Christ has done and who Christ is and what that means for us. We're going to walk in this tension this morning. Um, and, and thinking back to Adam in the garden, we don't, we don't have to go super far down the road of hypothetical here because we know that Adam failed to keep the covenant of works, right? Like God's one rule was um, don't eat from this tree. And Adam and Eve fail that. They fail to uphold the covenant obligations of God. He says, for your good, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And instead, they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So they're cast out of the garden. And what is given to them is a curse, the curse of sin and death. But the hypothetical is if somebody could perfectly keep God's law, what would happen to them? What if somebody could, what would have happened to Adam if he could have kept God's law? Well, life. Life is what Adam is, there's a tree of life in the midst of the garden. Life is the promise of a covenant kept. But once the fall happens, once the covenant is broken, 
Our father and mother in Adam and Eve, they break God's rule, and so death enters the world, sin enters the world. God continues, though, mercifully, to speak to his people in covenant form, and we see that these covenants are utterly gracious. Let's, let's run through them quickly. With Noah, God covenants what? He covenants to never flood the earth again. Even though the earth might deserve to be flood again, God says, I'll never do that again. I covenant with you, Noah. With Abraham, God covenants to make a people for himself, a great nation of the descendants of Abraham. God says, I will cut in you a new covenant, which is why circumcision is the sign of that covenant. God cuts a covenant, literally is what it says, with Abraham, and you'll never forget it because I'm going to cut it in your flesh. With Moses, God covenants to reveal his law to his people in order to point them to a future savior, right? A system of law is established, but with the system of law established is also a system of sacrifice established for the sake of repentance and forgiveness. So God says to Moses on Sinai, I will give you the law and I will give you a way to repent and seek forgiveness, a covenant of grace. And then with King David, we know God makes a covenant famously with David that says, through your lineage, I will put a king on the throne whose kingdom will never end. We know that points to Christ. So God speaks after the covenant of works is broken. God continues to make covenant with his people for the sake of showing and displaying his great grace to them, people who don't deserve grace. So when we get here to Nehemiah, this is not God coming down and making a covenant with the people. The people, rather, are making a covenant with one another and with God to reestablish a covenant relationship with God. They're committing themselves to God and his law, not necessarily for salvation, but at least temporally for um, a reprieve from the exile that they're in. They want to be delivered from exile. And so they say all this, that, Lord, here's all the ways that you've behaved towards your people historically and, pleading, and when they've pleaded with you for forgiveness and grace and mercy. And so we will reestablish a covenant with you. And simply the covenant that they established with Moses, it's the same set of laws. They just say, everything you told Moses to, we're going to do that. Right? Uh, verse 29 says that, that they will walk in God's law given to them through Moses. And then that long narrative that you read, they're going to highlight three different categories of law. And they do this because they're recommitting themselves to the laws that they particularly have broken. So they're making... They're making a plea on behalf of historically the way their fathers have broken the Mosaic law, the law given to Moses, the covenant given to Moses. But then they focus on some categories where we, we know we specifically, we Israelites in Jerusalem here in the age of Nehemiah, we have broken these laws in these ways. And so they re-kind of, they re-establish these laws. Let's look at them. They're the three um, categories. The first is marriage. The second is Sabbath, or the day of rest, and the third is giving. You didn't think this was going to be a giving sermon, but it is. Kind of. They're all kind of giving sermons. Um, let's start with marriage. Uh, it says this in verse 30. We will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Okay, so let's be careful not to read this through a 21st century lens, right? They're saying, we Israelites, we will not give our daughters to be married by any other nationality, and we will not take daughters from any other nationality to be married to us. What does this mean? Well, let me unpack it. Um, the law given to Moses, the, Mo the Mosaic law, 
bans the Israelites from marrying only specific nationalities, nationalities like the Canaanites and the Moabites. But by the time of Nehemiah, some thousands of years later, these nations uh, don't exist. The, the Canaanites haven't existed for some thousands of years by the time we get to Nehemiah. So they have a choice. They could say, well, we're not going to marry any Canaanites because the Canaanites don't exist. Or they could, they're, they're doing something here that we should learn from. They're plumbing the law to see the spirit of the law. What is God saying to us in this law? They're reestablishing the law for themselves and they're applying it to their context. This is brilliant work. It's work that we should learn from as Bible readers. How, what is the spirit of this law that seems outdated? What is God saying in this law, and how do we apply it to our, certain, our, our specific context? And so this isn't a racial thing. It's not an ethnicity thing. It's a holiness thing. Mainly they're saying when we marry our daughters to the, to the sons of other lands, we are marrying our daughters out of a house that worships Yahweh and into a house that worships probably the king of Persia. So we're sending them to a different religion. And so they say, this is really, really bad. And in fact, when we invite people into our homes that worship another religion, we, we shouldn't assume that they're going to um, take up Yahweh as their religion. We should just stop this practice at all because basically we're telling our daughters, when we send them to other lands, that you are no longer part of our people, that you do not worship Yahweh, and therefore the blessings of Yahweh are not for you. The Canaanites in the Old Testament, they worshiped Baal. So to marry your daughter to a Canaanite was to send her into a Baal-worshiping house and then hope that she just stays faithful to Yahweh. But it was given as a protection. So they, re they, they find the spirit of the law and they covenant, say, you know what, we're going we're gonna to keep our children in this people because this people worships Yahweh. And we know that Yahweh is real and the blessings of Yahweh are for this people. So that's the first thing they do. Two, they do the same thing with the Sabbath. Here's what they say. Um, verse 31, and if the peoples of the land bring in goods or grain of the, on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Here's what was going on. It turns out that the elite Jewish nobility, the, the upper class Jewish people in Jerusalem who owned businesses and things like that, they had found a loophole in the Sabbath. They realized, yeah, yeah, we can't work. It's the Sabbath. We keep that day holy. But if we pay other people to work who aren't Jewish, it's fine, I think. Like, I can pay them for their crops. I won't work my Jewish farmers, but I will pay other people for their crops. It's a loophole, right? Because the reality of the Sabbath law is God ordains the Sabbath not even to Moses. He ordains it to Adam at creation. And so the Sabbath is meant to bless not just God's people. It's meant to bless all people. And so they get together, and they're looking at this law, and they're saying, we found a loophole. We need to close this loophole because the reality is we are exploiting others on a day where we should be showing them the great nature of rest in God. It's a really important loophole to close. And they close it. So we have, they, they find, again, the spirit. What is the spirit of the Sabbath? It's so that people will know that in God there is rest. So she look at us as a great people of rest. But if we're making other people work on our behalf so we can make more money, we're not actually, we haven't found the spirit of the law. We're just trying to find a loophole. 
And finally, I'm not going to read all of these again, but verses 32 through 39 are largely about the holy rituals of the temple, and they establish two new tithes, which is give, that just means giving, right? They establish these new ways to give, and they recommit to themselves this extra generosity. So they, they say, okay, we're going we're gonna to give a new tithe to the temple, we're also going to do this wood offering thing because in the temple there's a flame that never goes out, and so if we don't have a system for giving wood to the flame, then the flame will just go out. So they have these new tithes. There's two primary reasons. First, um, as we read about in chapter 6, we've seen that this people in Jerusalem has really struggled with oppression. They've oppressed each other. They've enslaved other Jews into their own businesses for the sake of money and loans. They're excising great uh, interest rates on one another, right? And so uh, I think the primary reason they recommit to giving and giving above what the Mosaic law calls them to is because they're trying to combat their greed. They're trying to fight for generosity. And two, the rebuilding project of Jerusalem had drained the funds of the temple, there was a need for money. So at the end of the chapter, they say, we're going we're gonna to take care of the household of God. We're going to take care of the church. We're going to take care of the temple. This is the great place where people would come and experience Yahweh in the great city of God's people where the nation should be blessed. And we can't even keep a fire lit because we don't have enough wood. And so they recommit to generosity to fight their greed, but also to take care of the nations by being a place of holiness and reverence for God. So this is what, these are the three categories. This is what they do with the law over and over and over again. They don't just look at it and say, this is all obsolete. We don't have to follow the law anymore. That's not what Jesus did. That's not what the New Testament apostles did. It's not what we should do. They look at how they've abused the spirit of God's law and how they've um, sought out loopholes in God's law that they wouldn't have to follow it. They've, they've justified their own sinfulness by trying to find loopholes in God's law. They find out all of this and they say, look, like, let's re-covenant ourselves to God's law, but let's not just leave it there. Let's go above and beyond and point ourselves out. Let's expose our own sin, our own selfishness, our own flesh for the sake of being way, way, way above reproach. This is exactly what Jesus does when he comes and applies the law some 500 years later. He says, uh, we have to look at the, what the spirit of the law is doing, right? Like the law, Jesus said, like the law says don't commit adultery. But Jesus says, okay, the spirit of the law, it, yes, don't commit adultery, but the spirit of the law is to be so devoted to your spouse that you wouldn't even look at another with lust in your heart. That's the spirit of the law, to devotion to one another in covenant. The law says, don't murder. The spirit of the law is not to be ruled over by your emotions, specifically your emotions and anger. So if you have anger in your heart, it's, it's, it's like you've murdered because the spirit of the law is that anger wouldn't rule you, specifically unjust anger. This is how the apostles in the New Testament apply the law. They look for the spirit of the law in regards to God's reverence for his holiness. Love your neighbor, serve, give, serve the orphan, serve the widow. Those things that the law is about, they take and they don't, they don't say the law is obsolete. They say, let's apply this to Christian living in our context. And, and actually, often they find that the call is greater. The call to live in holiness is greater. And so I just think we should, 
we should learn from this. This is how we should look at God's law in our own life. What is the spirit of what God says and says to not do? Is it, is it for his reverence? Do I include or, or make wise relationship decisions for the sake of my soul and for the sake of people around me? Do I rest and not exploit people? Do I follow God's rules for the sake of others being blessed, not just myself being blessed, but so that others might be blessed because I'm observing God's law? Do I fight my greed with generosity, not just because the Bible says to give, which would be enough, but also because it's good for me because it kills my sin? Or do we, or do I, invent loopholes justifying myself? I do. I say, I will rest more when blank is done, or I will give more when blank the reality, they're just loopholes. I'm looking for the loopholes in God's law to justify my selfishness. Well, in the end, um, the Israelites in Jerusalem and here in Nehemiah's account, they covenant with one another. They outline these obligations. They beautifully do the work to recognize their own sin and their propensity. They recognize to find the loopholes, and they recommit themselves to walk in righteousness, and they close the loopholes for themselves. And as I noted last week, by the end of the Nehemiah account, they have failed to observe the Sabbath. They have failed to uphold the laws that they're just recommitting themselves to, which brings us back to what we talked about earlier, this covenant of works, the covenant with Adam that if you follow the rules that you will live. Well, the covenant of works, this follow the rules and you'll live covenant is very bad news because we can't uphold it, but it's also very good news. It's bad news because no one born in the lineage of Adam and Eve, which is all humans on the planet, no one born in the lineage of Adam and Eve can successfully or perfectly uphold the law. We are all born under the curse of sin and death. This is what we're told in scripture that all in Adam fell. It's good news is because there was one who wasn't born in Adam's lineage. This is why the virgin birth, the incarnation is so important. It's so important to get this minutia right. Jesus doesn't have the lineage of Adam. He has the lineage of God and the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus comes, he's not born under a curse. And therefore, as God, he, fulfill, he tells us he fulfills the law perfectly. I've come not to abolish law, but fulfill it is what Jesus says. And we know he walks in perfect obedience. He upholds all of God's statutes. He discerns and fulfills the spirit of the law, not just the law itself, but he figures out what the spirit of the law is because he's God and he wrote the law himself. And so he upholds it, no loopholes, but perfectly. And even with all of that, he pays the penalty. He bears the curse that the covenant demands for those who break it, right? The covenant demands if you break the laws, you should be put to death. Well, Jesus is put to death, not as one who broke the law, but on behalf of all of us who broke the law. He's crucified to death as our payment for our failures and our sin. Jeremiah the prophet anticipates this when he talks about a new covenant between God. Just listen to these words in Jeremiah 31 
and, and think of how they are applied to us in Christ. It says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Therefore, the church, the people of God, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the people of God after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. How does God forget the sins of his people? How does he forgive their iniquity? Well, Jesus comes and says, My blood is the new covenant. Take and drink. So the new covenant is that for those who look on Christ as the fulfillment of the old covenant, the new covenant is forgiveness and grace and assurance that his righteousness counts for you. This is what we mean when we say death has been destroyed. Right? It, death has no more power. Death, death's freedom on earth now is the freedom of a man on death row, right? He can, death can pace back and forth in his jail cell, but his days are numbered. Death will not win, has not won, because Christ has died and Christ has risen, and one day he will come again. So what man in Christ, when his body in pla- is placed in the ground, will not be reunited to it? What man in Christ will not be risen again over death. Life, it turns out, from the very beginning is is the result of a covenant upheld. So do we believe that works save you? Yes, Christ's works save us. Christ's works save us. He upheld the covenant, and so to come to him and to grasp him is to grasp life. Every week we come to the table and rehearse this truth because we eat the body and the blood of Jesus. We eat the bread, which reminds us that this is Christ's death. His blood is the new covenant in in his blood, he says. And from that freedom in our new covenant, we can delight in applying the spirit of the law because it's written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit, God himself We can find out how we can rest in the Lord truly. We can find out how we can have reverence for him in our entire lives. We can find out how we can live in a way that others are blessed by our holiness. That we can seek to live generous lives towards one another for God's mission. So instead of finding the loopholes so that we can live in the loophole, we can find the loopholes so we can destroy the loopholes together. This is who we are saved by God in Christ, changed by the Holy Spirit that has been sent to help us. And we remember the covenant at the table this morning. And so, as his blood flowed and his body was broken, the covenant was fulfilled. The curse was paid and it is finished, as he said on the cross. Let's pray. Lord, we... We kneel at your throne as the one who has conquered death, on the one who, as the one who has, we worship you, broken the curse, 
lifted the curse from us by taking the curse upon yourself, by upholding a covenant that we couldn't uphold, and by paying the penalty for breaking that covenant. And Lord, so the people in Nehemiah, will we learn from them and their faithfulness, and will we say today, Lord, we covenant with you and with one another to follow your law, not to be saved, but because we are saved, because we are saved. Will we, will we covenant with one another to hold one another to the cross? Would no one here who has claimed Christ have the right to say that their sin is too much for Christ to bear? Would we look at each other and say, you can't say that. Christ has died for this. He has put his righteousness on you. You are seen as forgiven. Your sins are forgotten, the new covenant says. No one too far gone. And we offer this to our neighbors who just don't believe. We say, look, like you can keep running this race, but Lord, what is the point? We offer you a taste of you, a seat at your table. Would we offer that to our brothers and sisters who don't believe in our lives? And would they, Lord, Holy Spirit, would you even now do the work to start tilling the soil of their hearts to receive the seed of your gospel? And I pray for much fruit as a result of this Sunday and every Sunday that we come to the table and remember what you have done. I pray for much fruit as we carry the truth of the gospel out of these walls and into a world that is dying because of a curse that can't be taken off, but that you have overcome. We remember your gospel for ourselves and for our world. Lord, we love you. And we pray this in your name. Amen.